The scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. It can be found on page 837 in the Black Bibles. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is fresh wineskins. The word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Walkers and uh, Ensemble. That was beautiful. Thank you all for leading us as well. Good morning. Great to be with you all this morning as we continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark where Jesus tells his first parables. Uh, He's warming us up uh, for for, for more parables as we go along. Um, But these are semi-confusing or could be seen as a little bit semi-confusing but they're they're actually very powerful and very important uh and so let's pray and ask the lord to lead us as we now look into his word lord jesus we thank you that uh, you are the bridegroom who has come we thank you that we are present in your midst celebrating your presence with us and we pray lord that uh, we would see you clearly this morning and you would work transformatively in every heart, in every mind, in every life that is here this morning. We ask it in your name. Amen. Well, this past June, as uh, they do every June, the National Basketball Association held its annual draft. And this year, the number one selection was a player out of Duke named Zion Williamson. He was drafted by the New Orleans Pelicans uh, as the first overall pick. That's exciting in and of itself, but as sometimes happens now in these scenarios, about a month after that, Zion Williamson signed his sneaker deal, and his sneaker deal uh, was with Nike. He's going to represent Nike's Jordan brand of sneakers, and it is purported to be the highest rookie merchandising contract for any NBA player of all time. Now, that's newsworthy in and of itself, but it's even more interesting if you think about the fact that in February of this past year, of 2019, both of those things were thrown into serious doubt. It happened in a game in February where Duke was playing against their arch rivals, University of North Carolina, the Tar Heels. Zion Williamson, wearing Nike shoes, as all of the Duke players were because they're a Nike-sponsored team, was running down the court, planted his foot, rolled over his ankle, severely sprained his ankle, and had to leave the game. And it became unclear, this is late February, it became unclear what his status was going to be for the rest of the season, or really what his status was going to be for the draft. But then they showed this injury in slow motion. And he hadn't miscalculated, he hadn't mistimed, he hadn't stepped on somebody's foot, What had happened was Zion Williamson, wearing Nike shoes, runs down the court, plants his foot, and the shoe that he is wearing cannot contain him. 
it explodes essentially. It burst. And by bursting, his momentum kept going and he rolled his ankle over in that shoe. Now clearly, Zion Williamson ultimately recovered from that injury. He was the number one pick in the NBA. And clearly, all's well that ends well with Nike you know, nothing that $75 million can't fix. Uh, he's, they seem to be in a pretty good place now. But it's just so crazy watching that video replay in slow motion of this huge athletic man making an athletic move and seeing a shoe just give way. Not being able to contain that force. Not being able to contain that power. There are ways, I think, that we as God's people, individually, maybe even sometimes as a church, that, that we try to contain the disruptive force of Jesus in our lives, the disruptive force of Jesus in our midst. In the imagery of C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, we don't want Jesus to be a wild, roaring lion. We want him to be a tame lion, right? We want him around, but we want him to be very safe, and we want him to be very calm. We don't want him to disrupt too much how we live our lives in the world. Some of us, particularly those of you who have been followers of Jesus for a long time in your life, some of you have become very comfortable in the lives that you inhabit in this world. And, and Jesus has got a place in your life. He's got a place in that world that you've created for yourself. But subconsciously somewhere, we're very careful to keep him in that box because we don't want him getting out of it. Because if he gets out of that box and he starts messing with our lives, the way that we utilize, that we think about our work, the way that we think about our, our, our resources, the way that we think about money, the way that we think about our thought life, then it gets un too unpredictable, it gets too wild, it gets a little bit too crazy, it gets a little bit too uncomfortable. I think a lot of us have ultimately given Jesus Nike shoes to wear. The problem with doing that is that Jesus is Zion Williamson times infinity. He can't be held in the shoes that we put him in. It can't contain him. He's going to come bursting out of that box every single time. The question that we really need to... It's not a question of is that going to happen. Yes, it is going to happen. The question for us is this, are we prepared for that to happen? Are we even desirous for that to happen? Are we so committed to submitting ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ that we are okay with and even look forward to those times that Jesus is a deeply disruptive presence in our lives because he's going to be that. He promises to be that. And it's essentially uh, the point of Matthew chapter 2, 18 through 22. The ultimate question posed to us by Jesus' interaction with the people who questioned him in this story about why his disciples don't fast when both the disciples of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the disciples of John the Baptist fast uh, is about Jesus' disruptive presence in the world. The king inaugurating the kingdom of God. Uh, so Jesus here begins with the question that is posed to him in verse 18. Why do your disciples not fast 
when the disciples of the Pharisees fast and the disciples of John the Baptist fast. Now Jesus answers this question with a concrete metaphor about a wedding party and the bridegroom being present in the wedding party. That's the kind of most specific way. And then he takes that specificity and he expands it out to a more general principle about the disruptive force and the disruptive power of the kingdom of God when it enters into the world. And by extension, the disruptive force and the disruptive power of the king, Jesus, who inaugurates the kingdom of God when he comes into your life. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm actually going to take the general principle first and then we're going to hone it down to the more specific metaphor. So first of all, the first thing we can see in Mark chapter 2, second part of the story, is that new wine demands new wineskins. New wine demands new wineskins. Now at first it's kind of hard to figure out why Jesus chooses these two short parables in verses 21 and 22. What do they have to do with either whether we choose to fast or not fast? And by the way, fasting in this context is specifically related to choosing to go without food for a specific period of time for a religious purpose. Uh, That's the immediate context of why this question is posed. And you wonder, why is he telling these stories about that? Well, in order to understand that, we actually have to first understand what in the world he's saying here because these are a little bit confusing parables. So in the first parable that Jesus tells, he describes the foolishness of using a brand new, unshrunk piece of cloth to mend a tear in an old garment. So an old garment would have been washed a number of times, so all of the fabric that was on that old garment would have already been shrunk. But you take a brand new piece of unshrunk cloth and you fit it in perfectly into that you know, tear, you sew it on there, but then what happens? Well, you wash the garment and the, the old part of it doesn't shrink because it's already shrunk as much as it's going to, but that new piece of fabric that you sewed on there, it does shrink. And so it begins to pull and to pull away the seams of what you have sewn And it breaks apart and it breaks part of the old garment off with it and it ultimately makes the original tear even worse than it was the first time. You need to shrink that up first so it fits into the old garment. The second parable, Jesus describes the foolishness of filling an old wineskin with new wine. Now, Here a little bit of explanation is order. I am not uh, a winemaker, nor am I the son of a winemaker. But I did do some Google work this week on making wine. Um, And and here's what I discovered, because this has always actually been very confusing to me. Y'all probably understood it completely, but this parable has been very confusing to me. But here's the way that this works. In the first century, wineskins were basically like, you know, leather canteens they were big kind of leather canteens they were made out of leather and when they were new the leather was soft and the leather was probably lambskin the leather was soft and the leather was pliable but like anything that's made out of leather that you've seen in your life over time with use and you know in this dry hot arid you know desert place it gets older and it dries up and it gets brittle so Here's the deal. 
wine in the first century was made in a two-stage fermentation process. And by the way, it's probably important for me to say this. When Jesus is talking about wine skin being poured, wine being poured into wine skin, he's actually talking about wine. He's not talking about grape juice. This would not actually work with grape juice. So I'm not making any statement with respect to, you know, use of alcohol. That's on you. But I am saying don't make a don't make a mental leap to the fact that he's not talking about something alcoholic here. He is. Otherwise, this story wouldn't work. All right, that's an aside. Again, I'm not making, that's your, that, you do with that what you will. Okay, but here's how wine fermented in the first century. They would, they would smush it all up. They would put it in large vats, and it would begin the fermentation process. But before the fermentation process was completed, because if they just allowed it to, to ferment in those big vats, it would have been sour. It kind of turned into vinegar, frankly. Uh, so they would take it, and this is what was called new wine. It was like half-fermented wine. New wine would be poured into these wineskins, right? And, it would, it, and in the wineskins, it would do two things. It would complete the fermentation process, and it would also come into contact with the fabric and the, with the leather and all that, and it would make it taste a little bit better than it would have tasted, you know, if it had just fermented the whole time in this vat. But here's what I learned from the Google machine, that when, when wine ferments, it actually releases gas. It releases carbon dioxide and it releases hydrogen. Here's the deal. In a new wineskin that is soft, that is pliable, that is made specifically for this purpose, when fermenting wine releases gas, that wineskin is able to expand with it. It's made for that. It's not a problem. It holds it. But if you were to take this half-fermented new wine and you were to put it in old wineskins that were brittle and frail and hard, when the gas was released through the fermentation process, it wouldn't be able to expand with it. It would burst. It would break. And the wine would spill. And you would ruin all of that wine that you had just made. Now, the principle of interpretation for parables, which I'll talk about briefly now, but we'll talk about in more detail when we get to these parables, is this. The first thing you have to do is you have to figure out what in the world these things are standing for in the world you know like who's what in these parables or, or, or what's going on here so here the old cloth or the old wineskin and hang with me here this is actually important but it, but there's a little bit of a detail here if you miss this detail you're going to think I'm saying something I'm not and you're probably going to be mad at me so so don't hear what I'm not saying as one of my professors once told me the old cloth and the old wineskin represent the structure of religious tradition. Religious tradition is the, op- is the operative word here because what they do not represent is the Bible. Do you understand the, diff- the, diff- the difference between the scriptures and traditions that emerged outside of the scriptures? So the old, the, the old cloth and the old wineskin represent these traditions that these religious leaders had tacked on to the Bible that they had, which is the Old Testament, so to the scriptures, they developed all of these traditions that are not actually in the Bible, right? But they had done them for so long and they had become so comfortable with them that you know, by the time of the first century, by the time of Jesus, it was really kind of hard for people who weren't, didn't really know to know what was actually in the Bible and what was not in the Bible. 
But these old cloth and this old wineskin represented religious traditions that were not explicitly taught in the scriptures. The new cloth and the new wine represent the presence of the kingdom of God in Jesus, this disruptive force that comes in. So the old traditions, having become settled and comfortable and frankly very exclusive, can't contain the power of the kingdom of God. Why? Because the kingdom, does a, the kingdom of God coming in Jesus does a lot of things that made all of these people really uncomfortable. Like it invited unexpected people into his presence. Like Levi, the tax collector that Andres preached about just a couple of weeks ago. And more than that, it invites all kinds of people that aren't even Jewish or Israelites into the presence of Jesus, which they didn't understand at all. And so Jesus is coming in and he's disrupting everything and it's rubbing up against these traditions that, that the Israelites kind of religious leaders had established for 400 years that aren't explicitly in the Bible but have kind of taken on a biblical air of their own and he's blowing it all up. Not the Bible. The traditions that followed the Bible. And that is why they are so in conflict. Because these religious leaders, these Pharisees, they had become very comfortable. They had, they had developed for themselves a rhythm of life that made their religion. It was stringent, yes, but it was also very known. It, was, it, it, it didn't have a lot of room for the unexpected. It was very comfortable and it was also very exclusive. Because this religious tradition that had developed outside of the Old Testament law had a couple of purposes, but one of the purposes was to separate the really serious, the really religious, the really committed from the regular folk. And there was nobody more really serious and really committed than the Pharisees in the first century. So they had become very comfortable in this tradition that they had created for themselves. But Jesus comes in to explode all of that. And, and not for the sake of just being disruptive for the sake of disruption. He comes in to disrupt, to establish and display the full-orbed power of the kingdom of God. What it does, who it is for, what it changes. And the answer is, it changes absolutely everything. So it disrupts absolutely everything. So that got me to thinking, here's a question for us. What are the old wineskins that maybe we have created in our religious subculture in America over the course of the last, I don't know, several, many, many, many years? What are the old wineskins that we have become comfortable with, but if we stop and think about it, really can't serve to contain the true disruptive force and the true power of Jesus. I thought of a whole bunch of them actually this week uh, and I think if you stop and think about it you'll think about a lot of them too but, but I, think it's, I think there are a couple of these that we need to some are more operative than others in our culture today and one of them is this, one of the old wineskins that, that certain people are inhabiting uh, we as a church try not to inhabit this, but I mean, it's, it's very difficult to get away from. But one of the wineskins that makes it difficult for people, particularly people 
that live in, 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 in other corners of the city of Houston. Remember, our vision at Christ the King is to reach the city of Houston for Christ, all of Houston, all types of people in all corners of Houston. That's, that's hard to do. Um, but think about all of those corners of Houston. But one of the things that makes it difficult for certain people in certain corners of our city to actually give a hearing to the full ord power of the gospel is the insistence upon certain Christian leaders to wed the gospel message to one singular political party in our country. In fact, we're doing even more. We're wedding it to one singular political leader in our country. Now, that is troubling with respect to the vision and the mission of our church because it is a stumbling block to many who are not already in the club, so to speak. And Jesus is enough of a stumbling block all on his own, you know, to, for us to, to, to need to create other ones. So we need to try to do what we can to disentangle the gospel from the politics of power and from the politics of influence because those are wineskins that can't actually hold the full disruptive power of Jesus. Um, that, that's one. There are many others, but you can see how if you think about the lives that we inhabit, this is natural and normal. We grow up in a particular culture. We grow up, you know, kind of in a, in a particular way. And these things that we build that are not explicitly in the Bible, but we make, you know, into tradition over time and we inhabit them for a long time, sometimes it becomes difficult to tell what's actually biblical and what is actually non-biblical tradition. We have to be those who are always willing to have Jesus come in and question us and have Jesus come in and to disrupt, you know, our way of thinking and our way of living and to test it on the nature of the scriptures. Now, here's a place where we have to be careful and we have to be understandable. We have to understand what Jesus is not saying because there are people who are believers, who are Christians, who are saying, you know what? It is so hard for unbelievers in our culture to give a hearing to the gospel. And so one of the things we have to do is we have to not only disentangle what is traditional from what is the scripture, we really need to make the scripture itself more palatable to people. You know, maybe we need to change a few things in the Bible because there are some things that are in the Bible that are deeply, deeply uncomfortable to a lot of people in our culture. Jesus is not saying that. He is not saying that. He did not come to change the Bible. He said this explicitly. I did not come to change the law, but to transform the law and to fulfill the law. In fact, until heaven and earth pass away, not one dot will be taken away from this law. We must stand on the authoritative, true word of God, no matter what. No matter if people think we're idiots or stupid or old-fashioned, no matter if our tax-exempt status is taken away, which could happen, probably will happen, doesn't matter. It's not going to stop you know, God from building his church. We have to stand on the scriptures. But we have to be vigilant about disentangling the scriptures from tradition that we build on top of the scriptures, which become unnecessary entanglements to our mission and to our vision. 
So new wine demands new wineskins. Second, the presence of Jesus calls for a feast and not a fast. So new new wine demands new wineskins and the presence of Jesus calls for a feast and not a fast. This is ultimately the presenting issue that led Jesus to tell the parables of the new cloth and the new wineskin. Now, here's, here's, here, this is where it can be confusing to you because this is where if you're, not really, if you're not really thinking through it all the way, you can think that Jesus is not being obedient to the Bible, but he is. Here's the deal. The Old Testament, the Bible that they had in the first century, what we know as the Old Testament, prescribes one fast day for the entire nation of Israel. Just one. That day, if you didn't go to school on Wednesday, you just celebrated it. It was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That is the one day in the entire Old Testament that all of the people of Israel are commanded to fast. But what happened over time is that leaders, in order to, you know, for a lot of different reasons, probably good reasons to begin with, um, to, to, you know, for mourning or for national, to, to call out to God for, for, for protection, you know, uh, all kinds of, they, they added fasting days to this one day that was prescribed in the Old Testament. And they didn't become, and, and over time they weren't just kind of, uh, they, they weren't random, they became codified in a, in a code of fasting. And so there were these days of fasting they were not explicitly commanded in the Old Testament, but that people that were really, really, really serious about their obedience to God began to observe. The Pharisees observed those days, and apparently the disciples of John the Baptist uh, observed those days. And the reason why people came to ask Jesus why his disciples weren't observing those days is because they were basically warning him, like, hey, Jesus... You're not going to be taken very seriously in a competitive marketplace of, of gurus, religious gurus, if, you're not, if your disciples aren't fasting when everybody else is. Do you see what I'm saying? The Pharisees and their disciples were fasting. They had disciples. John the Baptist, he had a following. His disciples were fasting. And in comes Jesus and his disciples are hanging out, not fasting. And basically saying, you're not competing well, Jesus. You're not competing well with the religious leaders. You know, how are you going to build a movement if you're, if, you're, if you're so weak on all of these observances? And so here's what Jesus says to answer that question. Hey, how can the guests at the wedding fast when the bridegroom is present? What? I can understand going to a wedding, it's not a time to fast, but what are you talking about? Well... Again, Jesus is making a radical claim. Super radical. There is a thread that runs throughout the entirety of the Old Testament where God himself calls himself the bridegroom to Israel, the nation who is his bride. You can, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see this imagery all the way throughout it. You'll see it explicitly in some of the prophecies. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. Isaiah chapter 62, verses 4 and 5. Pretty much the entire prophecy of Hosea is an extended allegory of God's uh, husbandry of his wayward 
bride Israel who has left him and has gone and, and, and committed figurative adultery with other gods and God is a husband and a bridegroom who pursues all the way to the very end. So when Jesus says, how can the people fast when the bridegroom is present, everybody has said, what? What? You heard him. Jesus is the bridegroom. God is the bridegroom. Jesus is present. Because Jesus is present, God is present. And in the presence of God, that's a time to feast. And that is not a time to fast. Now Jesus does not, uh, he does not poo-poo the idea of fasting totally. He does say, hey look, there will be a time when the bridegroom is taken away. He's talking about his death, his resurrection, then his ascension into heaven. And he says, when the bridegroom is taken away, then they'll fast. They'll have a lot of good reasons to fast then, but not now. Because the bridegroom is here. God is in the midst of you. This is a time to celebrate. This is a time to feast. This is not a time to fast. Back in... Uh, 1958, Danish author Karen Blixen wrote a short story that was eventually transformed into a screenplay in 1987, uh, a movie called Babette's Feast. It was my wife's favorite movie when we met, and so we watched it. And then it quickly became one of my, so it goes into my top five of, of, of favorite movies. It's the, it's the story of a young French woman named Babette who is escaping the violence of counter-revolutionary France in the 19th century. And she escapes Paris and she goes into this Danish village that was essentially founded. Uh, y'all will like this part. It was founded by this super austere uh, Protestant minister. You know, y'all know any super austere Protestant? You know, kind of like me, not like me. Uh, but it was it was this it was this entire community that was uh, that was founded by this very austere. A very ascetic, you know, minister. And basically, they had separated themselves from the world so much in every way, they just were not going to allow the temptations of the world to enter into, you know, this, this community they had built for themselves. Now, the, the, the pastor died, but he had two daughters. His two daughters did not marry, and so as they grew into middle age and maybe into the late middle age, they become the, became the kind of the keepers of the tradition of this community. Their role was to make sure that nobody had any fun, ever. Because, you know, uh, fun may lead to smiling, and smiling may lead to dancing, and dancing may lead to smiling again, and, you know, these kinds of things. So, so when Babette entered into this community, it, 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 it was disruptive. She was this young, you know, artistic French you know, Parisian woman who brought joy and who brought laughter and who brought levity into their community. And so this community kind of received her with this kind of mixture of curiosity but largely suspicion. But they were kind to her because she was kind to them. Babette had one worldly possession that she brought with her from Paris to this community in Denmark. It was a lottery ticket. And she had a friend back in Paris that kept renewing this lottery ticket for her year after year. And lo and behold, one day it hits. She wins the lottery. She wins 10,000 francs. 
And with 10,000 francs, she could go and reestablish her life in Paris. She could reestablish herself. She could essentially uh, create a life for herself that was free of the violence and the persecution that she was escaping. But instead, she decides to repay the kindness of these villagers by throwing them a party, a feast. And in order for Babette to throw a feast for this village, she had to get ingredients from Paris because they ate potatoes and fish without seasoning um, and bland vegetables. That's all they ate because, you know, things that tasted good may lead to smiling and, you know, those kinds of things. On and on it goes. So, so she's, she's ordering all of these ingredients for Paris and they're coming in and all of the townspeople are looking at them and they're going, I don't know about this. I don't know about this. You know, this is looking a little scary to me. So they call a town meeting. And in the town meeting, they basically have, are faced with the question, do we call off the feast? This is, this is too frightening. Do we call off the feast? And they come up with an ingenious plan. They basically say, no, we'll allow the feast to continue because we don't want to discourage Babette who we love, but during the feast, we will not enjoy the food. We'll eat it, but we won't like it. We won't smile. We won't comment on it. We will eat respectfully, then we'll stand up and we'll leave. So the day comes and Babette throws her feast for the townspeople and they come and they sit down and they're austere and they eat and they do not smile. They want to smile, but they do not smile. They do not comment, and it's very uncomfortable. But one of the people that was invited to this feast was the nephew of one of the townspeople. He was also, uh, uh, had, had spent time in Paris, and he didn't really care about what they thought. And so he, he you know, everybody took it. He was like, this is the best thing I've ever eaten. This is amazing. It reminds me of my favorite restaurant back in Paris. It's closed now, but my favorite restaurant, Cafe Anglais, tastes exactly like this is the most amazing thing. And so as he's enthusiastic about it over time, you know, uh, somebody smiles here and somebody comments there. And pretty soon in the midst of this feast, simply because of the beauty of it, because of the wonder of it, because of the love that is infused into it, all kinds of things happen in this community. Feuds that have been going on for years, even a couple of generations, are, are brought together because these people are eating and they're enjoying one another's company. And all of a sudden, joy enters into this place for the very first time, simply because this woman, Babette, used her gifts, her money, and the talent that she had to throw a giant party for people that she loved you know a lot of you come out of different uh, religious traditions a lot of you don't come out of any religious tradition at all and one of the questions that you might have when you come to a church like Christ the King is why do we have communion every single Sunday at this church maybe you come out of uh, of a of a of a religious tradition that does it much more sparingly, you know, much less. And, and why when we have communion are we walking around, you know, and why are we singing songs while we're having communion? I'm sitting here and I'm trying to feel bad about myself and you're distracting me by music, you know. Why do we do that? I'm going to tell you why we do that. We do that because Jesus is here. Jesus is in our midst. There is one central place at one central time of the week that Jesus gathers with his people specifically 
And it is during our time of worship. When we gather together on the Lord's day as his people around his word and his table, he is in our midst. And when Jesus is in our midst, that is a place for feasting and not for fasting. Now, we will leave this place after the benediction and we will go out into the world. And when we go out into the world, we will sin we will struggle, we will be discouraged, we will try hard to represent Jesus, and we will be rejected. We're going to run into uh, things in our culture that are deeply, deeply, deeply hostile to the things that we most hold dear. We're going to have to try to figure out how we deal with that. We're going to try to figure out how we faithfully represent Jesus there. That's a time for fasting. That's a great time to fast. Probably not the whole week, but you know, it's some place in there. But when we gather together as the body of Christ, where Jesus is present, where, his, where this banquet is present, that's why we feast. And that's why we come to his table with great joy. And so that's why it's a great privilege for me as your pastor to say, all who are weary and all who are heavy laden, come to your Savior. Come to him in faith. And after you've come to him in faith, he then invites you to his table. He invites you to eat and to drink with him and his people with great joy. He invites you to feast at his right hand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're thankful for this meal that you set for us and for your grace in inviting us to it. We pray that we would celebrate the feast that we have in your presence, our Savior and King. Amen.